know, they just have no sense of what that's all about. And so before we get the price, we might sort of do some educating around, okay, how does this work? And how long might it be? And what can you expect your people to do as a result? And so then once you've done that, then you can sort of get the price because they're not even, forget even price, they just don't even know when it is almost. But that's because we strategically felt like bringing up the price too early just doesn't make sense. And not that it's just a habit or even worse, just an avoidance that, hey, this is uncomfortable and so I'm just not going to do it. That's definitely not best practice. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Andres Lares. Andres is the CEO at the Shapiro Negotiation Institute, and he's the author of a new book titled Persuade, the Four-Step Process to Influence People and Decisions. And in our conversation today, we're talking about, well, persuasion and influence. We dig into the topic of what the differences are between persuasion and influence, and why this is important and how you sell. And then we dive into the steps that Andres lays out in his book about how to build influence, how to build credibility, engage emotions, demonstrate logic, and facilitate actions. We talk about the correlation he sees in these four steps with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is a really interesting perspective to have on negotiations. And then he also shares his formulas for building credibility and trust. And we get into sort of the chicken and egg discussion about which comes first, credibility or trust. So we get into this and much, much more. But before we get to Andres, I remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it. If you could also leave us a review, give us your feedback about how we're doing. We'd really appreciate that. All right, let's jump into it. Andres, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Andy. It's a pleasure to have you. So you're joining us from where? Uh, well, currently actually in Toronto, but home Toronto. base is Baltimore. Yeah. Oh, Baltimore. Okay. So I guess the border just opened up, didn't it? Well, you know what? So I'm a Canadian, so the border has technically always been open. Not been easy open. to cross, right. but it has always been open. <laughs> okay. Got it. Um, well, tell us a little bit about you and the work that you do. Yeah. So the uh, Shapiro Negotiations Institute is a global sales negotiation influence training firm. So I've been around for 26 years now, and uh, 26 years of classroom training and about 12-ish years of doing online. Mm -hmm. So uh, I guess if there was a bright spot uh, to COVID, which I'm not sure there is one. uh, So if we're really trying to think glass is half full here, it was the fact that you know, we've been training online for, for a good chunk of time and, and actually probably trying to convince in some cases some of our clients that they should do th- uh, their training online right. because maybe they were, you know, it was, uh, globally spread out or whatever reason and they didn't really listen. And uh, now we're getting over the last two years a lot of the, why didn't you tell me to do this? And, uh, you know, as much as I want to scream back, we have been telling you to do this for a decade. <laughs> it's it's the result that matters. So I'm thinking, okay, great. And, and uh, pretty happy with where that part is. Yeah. Well, it has to be their idea, right? Yeah, that's that's the name of the game. That is the name of the game, right? So, um, so sales negotiation training. So, yeah, that's sort of an interesting thing because I, I'm one of these people who says I don't think sellers should negotiate. <laughs> I always like leave. I mean, I come from a background selling large, complex deals, and and I was perfectly content to hand off the negotiations to contract negotiators. Though I really effectively was negotiating through how I sold. So I'm just sort of interested in your perspective about that. 
And so I think certainly some overlap in the fact that, that, you know, when a lot of people think of negotiating, they think of that last little bit when they're almost like, okay, now I bring up price, we go right. back and forth a little and the deal gets done. And if you're doing that, then first of all, you should be negotiating. And by then it's too late, right? right. So I think the the broader sort of, there's really a fine line between negotiating and selling because really negotiating is about building up the value all the way through. So mm-hmm. that essentially, if you've done a really good job, to your point, you know, from as far as like discounting, you're not doing that because you've built so much value along the way, built so much credibility, built the rapport, done all these things that then allow you when you say the price, it's almost a deal to the other side, right? There's so much value there that there really isn't a need to push back. And so you're almost overcoming the objections before they come up in the first place. Yeah, well, I always like to lead with price. <laughs> I mean, it's I worked for, early in my career, worked for our bosses hugely successful individuals whose theory was, you know, quote early, quote often. Because you'd use quotes as a way to qualify and do discovery, right? It's a trigger to a conversation. And we, yeah, we do. We it, believe in that. I, as yeah. a company, actually, internally, we believe in that. There are some clients that we advise that too, but it's exactly for that reason that it now it depends where you are, right? If you're the low-cost provider or you're the most expensive in those two probably spectrums, you want to do it because low-cost, you want to really feature the fact that you're low-cost. And if you are the most expensive, you do want to qualify. But I think in the middle ground, that might be the only times where maybe you want, can you build some of that rapport and value so that when you do share the price, then you've almost at least, you know, you've created enough sort of willingness to continue the process where you might have maybe scared some people off early on. So yeah. that's one of the ways of thought. But yeah, we certainly feel very much like you did, I think, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, it just, <laughs> I have never understood why you hide from price. I mean, it's it's first of all, in my mind, and just logically, is you can't talk about. I mean, value is relative. To, it's always be relative to the price, right? In in one dimension, or another, and so you really can't have a a value conversation uh, without price being talked about. Well, and I think uh, why that happens, I think from our experience, most of it is because salespeople are uncomfortable bringing it up. <laughs> that's, yeah, a, yeah, that's a big yeah. part of it, right? right. Uh, but I, I would say, you know, there's, there's a difference between not bringing up price because you strategically think in a situation it's better to hold off or do it at a different time. But I'd say generally price is not brought up because there's an uncomfort to do so. And you sort of feel like that might screech it to a halt. And so then that begs a lot of questions on, well, if you're not convinced that you're worth that, how are you possibly going to convince your buyer that you're worth that, right? And so that's a that's another can of worms there. Yeah, well, I think sellers think that you know, I've got to I've I've got to I've got to tell them more about why we're good before I unveil price because otherwise, you know, they have no context for it, and it's yeah, not really. I mean, there's never going to be the ideal moment. Uh, start with that. I mean, I, I yeah, I thought that was a genius move on my boss's part, and have done that often. It's like. Yeah, let's have that conversation up front, and then we sort of set a goal and we work toward it. Yeah, I think so very much so. I think the, the only exceptions, I think, for us, so sometimes when we're teaching clients, for example, when education is a big part of the sale. So sure. there are times where it's almost like you're still doing price early on in the pitch portion, but almost before you even get to that, you're really educating because, for example, in our case, right, if, if a client has never done any soft skills training externally ever in their life, then, you know, they just have no sense of what that's all about. And so before we get the price, we might sort of do some educating around, okay, how does this work? 
And how long might it be? And what can you expect your people to do as a result? And so then once you've done that, then you can sort of get the price because they're not even, forget even price. They just don't even know, you know, what it is almost. But, and like I said, to me, it's really about, in you. but that's because we strategically felt like bringing up the price too early just doesn't make sense. And not that it's just a habit or even worse, uh, just an avoidance that, hey, this is uncomfortable. And so I'm just not going to do it. That's, uh, That's definitely not best practice. But I also think that increasingly, given sort of the the way that B two C behaviors are migrating into B two B selling, that people expect to see price, right? Good I mean, point. It, Transparency. It, yeah, I mean, it's I, I, I expect they, to see it on a website and I know before I even call you. Yeah. Yeah, and mm-hmm. if and if you make me click a button to talk to a salesperson to get a price, I'm gonna be pissed off. Yeah. I mean, that's that's not a good first impression you want to make. So I think this idea of transparency is it's a there's more expectation around it. And so I, I think you sort of diffuse it as an issue because you know, if you're doing trying to justify a price in advance of revealing the price, I think that's a much more difficult task than justifying the price after you've set the target of what the price is. And actually, one word that you said that I think really got me is the justifying. Because right. I do think that... If you know there, if you say it up front, there's no justification. It is what it is, and so rather than if you are building up to say it, the other side feels that build up, and so it feels like you're proactively justifying. But there's nothing to justify, right? You bring enough value yeah. to the table that the price is the price, and you're still going to get tremendous value as a result. And so, I, I think even that mentality of when folks are justifying it, whether before or after, can be dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, and another point too about negotiation we had touched on before is is the way I have worked large deals is, is, you know, you sort of build it like a puzzle, right? Or, or what's the, what's the tower game? Jenga? Oh, <laughs> Jenga. When you pull, when you pull them out or when you build yeah, it when out? You pull, <laughs> yeah, when you pull the block out. Jenga, yeah. And, and to me, that's, that's sort of your goal, right? Is, is that when you get to the end of the process with your buyer before it then transitions over to legal or procurement, whoever's going to do sort of the detailed T's and C's, you've wrapped up all the points, the major business points, the ones that are going to, you know, have the biggest impact on you from a, a profitability standpoint, and so on, as part of this puzzle, you know, because you're going through a series of trade-offs with the buyer throughout the process of selling, and the end result is, well, if, if procurement says, well, we're just going to pull this block out here, it's like, oh, well, yeah, if you do that, it's going to change this dimension. Deliverables will change. Time frame will change. You know, this is what your people have already agreed to. So you've got this package that you deliver that is almost impermeable, you know, the key business points by procurement or by legal because if they pull one out, it all goes, it all falls down. Yeah, absolutely. In alignment there. And I think, um, and the pulling out, I think also is where I think you can almost like get a second chance to demonstrate the value. You know, one of yeah. the things we talk about is the best way to really figure out if someone cares about something is you take it away, right? So, yeah. oh, Andy, yeah, okay, you want to take that away? Okay, let's, yeah. So if you do yeah, that, yeah, if, sure. then we're going to have to remove this. Oh, no, 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 don't do that. Oh, okay, exactly. all right. That's that's what I thought. I, I thought that was important to you, but now we are now we know for sure it is. <laughs> right, but what, what I have always tried to do is that that conversation is not between me and procurement. It's between my champion, my sponsors, and their procurement. Because the procurement will go to them and say, we're going to pull this out. And they'll go, no, 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 we can't do that. If you do that, you know, we're not going to be able to get you know, on time or whatever the dimension is that's affected by it. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, You have a lot more leverage, and you know, it's going to go a lot smoother if the internal champion is leading it or at least involved. 
Oh, and yeah. I think, uh, and especially, I mean, the bigger the purchase, the more complex. Because I think also times, you know, procurements, we actually, we do quite a bit of negotiation training on the procurement side also. Sure, sure. And I think when we do that, I think a big part of it for them, and it, where it's actually evolved over the last decade to sort of negotiation and influencing, is because procurement also wants to be sort of, uh, they don't want to be considered, you know, this like the last step in the process mm. that ruins deals or, you know, almost like, Dr. you know, you're... No. Exactly. And and yeah. the idea is that they're a strategic partner internally. Right. And so yep. I think when you've got the internal conversation, you, you're not trying to save face or prove yourself, right? Procurement's just doing their job. I think sometimes when procurement's dealing with the outside party, the vendor, then they're almost like trying to prove their worth a little bit, right? Okay, let's lower the price. Let's oh, do yeah. this. Let's X, Y, and Z. But when it's internal, they have less of that. And so that, it's a huge, you know, it's a huge win when you can keep it internal as much as possible. Yeah. No, I just think it's, it's something I try to teach people. It's just... Yeah, let them have that discussion because uh, you've got somebody that's already bought into this vision and they see how the pieces fit together. And, yeah, they're a much more powerful advocate for not making changes than you are because they're all on the same team. For sure, for sure. Yeah. All right, so uh, you've written a book, a new book called Persuade, the Four-Step Process to Influence People and Decisions. So what was the impetus to write the book? Well, one thing is for sure that I could not have picked a better time because the writing occurred accidentally over COVID. Oh, <laughs> so, there you go. so that worked out pretty well. If you're going to bunker down and do something, write a book is is up there. I, I did the same, by the way. But yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's it, you know, and that was not on purpose. I wish I could say, oh, you know, strategic, and uh, but it was already just had been starting right as as COVID uh, came about. But so the impetus was so we have a. We have a negotiation book, which is really sort of the basis for our negotiation training. It's been mm. updated a few times. And, and influencing has been something we've been training for 10, 12 years. And so it was a combination of things. One, I've always sort of wanted to do it and never really sort of taken the time. But as time went on, it became almost evident that we needed something more there, I think, as a resource that people can go to after, as a way to market the firm, and then also as a way to learn more. I mean, one of the things that I really learned from, so our founder had written four books, so Ron Shapiro had written four books mm-hmm. uh, before I took over. And one of the things that I learned from him, the, the last couple I was around for, was that, I mean, you learn a great deal. I mean, I, I know writing a book is a lot about sharing what you have been studying, learning, either from mistakes or whatever it may be. But you actually learn a great deal. And, and that's yep. one of the things that I want to do is, okay, I I wanted to sort of take it to the next step. And, and so th- that was the best part of it, actually. I mean, I feel like um, and in, in the, in the most interesting ways, I think what I expected to deep, deep dive into, maybe there wasn't as much there as I thought, but other areas I hadn't thought about, there was a lot more. And so like body language, for example, we've always sort of included a little bit and we ended up just going into this huge deep dive on body language. And I think that was a, a year of studying body language, which was well worth it. And, you know, and I wouldn't have done otherwise. And, you know, things like that, that I think made the process really, really interesting and worthwhile. And, then July seventh, uh, the fruits of all that labor, you know, came to came to for you know it came to a, a physical thing that we can now point to for better or for worse. Yeah, well, I mean, it's so interesting you talk about body language because I mean, there's certainly, hey, that's something that's written about extensively in the wake of the pandemic and everything going to to video calls from in person, and one of the things that's you know, that's written about is it's yeah much more difficult to serve. Sort of be attuned to someone else's body language over a video call versus being in person. And I was wondering, you know, how you, how you deal with that. You know, as a, as a human, you're dealing with another person as, yeah, body language is important, but you know, you see people typically from the shoulders up. 
yeah, it's it's certainly not the full picture that you would get, and and you miss you know walking down the hall, Andy and and Andres go down the hall before we meet and we mm-hmm. chat, you know, impromptu, and we might right. rep, you know uh, present me to a colleague, all, you know, all of these things that happen, grab lunch later, the informalities, and seeing all the stuff in the the back of an office, you know, in the walls or whatever. So there's a lot there, and I think. One of the reasons that ended up growing so much in the book was because of the timing. So what was going to be just, you know, a chapter on body language ended up expanding. And then we really, it went into the impact that COVID was having because as we were writing it, COVID was becoming more and more, you know, clearly changing the course of business short term and Mm -hmm. long term. We really went into things like media richness and truly understanding Okay, so, uh, you know, what do you miss out on? So uh, Albert Moravian has this famous quote that many have heard of where only 7% of uh, what you communicate is what you say. So the words and the other 93% is everything else, the tone, body language. And so trying to figure that, okay, so what is lost when you're not in person and what can you still get from video? And then what do you lose on when you're just on a, you know, a phone call? And so all that was was really interesting. And I think it's super timely, really, because... I think there's there's got to be an in between somewhere. Like you know, if we just do video calls for everything, then we're zoomed out, and and it's been you know lots of research around that how we're tired. But at the same time, if we just totally avoid it, we don't see anyone in person or even do video, then we're missing a richness. We're we're missing a tool to develop relationships. And and one of the things that I love, for example, right now, you and I are recording a podcast that's only on audio only, but we're on video, mm-hmm. and and it it changes the the feel of this at least for sure. you and I, and hopefully that makes it a better product for the listener. So I think it's a perfect example of something that's subtle, but but clearly it makes a difference in my opinion. Yeah, well, the thing that's interesting, too, is I think that the research is just really beginning into the impact of video and and <clears throat> what's lost and what's gained for doing it. I mean, I, I was a week ago, I went through and, and I forgot what triggered me to do it, but I was doing research, spent a couple hours online doing research about, you know, what's a more effective communication tool? Is it is it video or is it just audio? You know, is it just the phone? Because there was a study I'd read, uh, I think, in Fortune magazine right at the beginning of the pandemic, when Zoom was already still, you know, pretty popular but not ubiquitous like it has become. And initial research saying, gosh, you know, you miss so much with video in terms of tonality and and you know just nuance. That that's missed, um, whether it's because you're distracted looking at your own picture or uh, just the quality of of the video and so on. That they're saying, hey, you know, this is not the end all be all. Phone is still really important, and there's still more studies sort of coming out. I'm sort of I'm curious to see, yeah, what we're going to come out at at the end because certainly you gain some things with video, but we're also finding out that you're you're losing some things. You actually don't listen as as carefully and as closely as you would just being on a phone. I think there's so much there because it's it's the same as like a tool, right? So, you know, one kind of screwdriver doesn't work for every screw. And I think ultimately it's where we're going to end up that video is going to have its use and audio will have its use right. depending on the person, depending on what the subject matter is of the conversation. But I, and because there really are so many plus minuses. And I think the other factor will be technology will improve. So even over the course of the last 18 months, I mean, so Zoom had its security concerns as one of the big knocks, mm-hmm. but the other was the quality of the video. There's certainly some other ones that have better quality. Right. So as the quality of the video gets better, as the quality of the audio gets better. But it's interesting, right? If you think about like just as a you know common example, so when we do training and you look at in the classroom, what's the, what are the chances that over the course of a two-day negotiation training, someone would 
open up their laptop and just start working for three hours of an eight hour day. And the chances were, you know, over the course of 26 years, when I asked my facilitators, they said it's never happened, you know, someone had to step up for a call, of course, but so that's basically never happened. Now, what's the likelihood that someone just tries to plug away at work for an entire 90 minute session we might run? And early on in the pandemic, it was actually quite high. And what's interesting is we actually tell our clients, it's our job to keep them interested. So it's like, you know, yes, we do want support. Yes, we do want you to set the tone that, hey, this will be engaging, interactive. You're going to do simulations and role plays, so you're not going to be able to punch at work. But to some extent, we feel like it's our job, right? If, if we're good at what we do, we're almost selling to them. We're compelling enough to keep their attention. But but certainly that just the the media change, you know, we're like, now we're, we're on video. We feel like, oh, whatever. And so there is definitely the next step when you're on phone. You know, in the old days, you could hear like, you know, the keyboard going and, you know, someone's yeah. whatever. And so it is interesting. There's so much there, I think, and so much to study. And it's it's just not going to be a straightforward answer. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not like you're not distracted when you're on the phone. I mean, <laughs> you know, when I'm on the phone with my wife, she can tell within a heartbeat when I'm looking at my computer. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> she's, you know, perhaps more finely attuned to those things. Just the slightest pause in my response and I'm I'm caught out, which, you know, oftentimes she's right. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think, I hope there will be a, a renaissance of the phone because I, I am, I mean, I, I tell people, I did my first video sales call in 1989. So... Yeah, I've been doing it for a long time. Uh, part of it was because I was in the satellite business and we used satellite communications for it. But, but um, yeah, I, I I do think people listen better on the phone. They hear better on the phone. Listen as a result, listen better. And I think people have, people have to be more sensitive to your point earlier about being more multi-channel in the way they communicate. I mean, right now we talk about omni-channel, but it, it, the phone sort of seems to get overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think there's a real place for it. Um, all right, so I want to talk about your book because Trigger Love it's an area that I've been thinking a lot about the last several years, and the way you sort of set up in the title and and I'm really interested in your perspective. This is not meant to be a critique, is but it's yeah you know, we tend to use persuasion and influence sort of interchangeably, and to me they're not really the same. And so I'm I'm sort of curious in your perspective on that. Uh, not the same. I think there's a ton of overlap, and it's interesting. I think even the answer to this is over over time has changed. Um, so we we were founded as a negotiation training company, mm-hmm. and then we started doing sales training and influence training, and then over time, even that we you know we started to think, okay, well, where does selling and negotiating start and end? Where does influencing and negotiation start and end? And then the same with with persuasion. So I think. Now, after having written the book and, and sort of really thought a lot about that, I would agree. I think they're not, um, you know, perfectly synonymous, but I think there's quite a bit of overlap. I mean, I, I think it's almost like in the Venn diagram, there's a, there's some pieces where there's, a, you know, there's a, a big chunk where the two overlap, but you're essentially often exerting influence on others and influencing others versus I think the persuasion is a little bit different. But I, I interestingly enough, from a dictionary kind of definition standpoint, which is where we started in all this, sure, yeah, they're even they're even more closely aligned than than I think I would have expected. Well, actually, I, that's see, yeah, that's where I saw the differences, and and because I'm I'm writing about this and the differences between persuasion and influence from a strictly sales perspective in my new book that comes out next year is is yeah you know, the way that we train sellers with persuasion it's it's an instrument of coercion, right? And even the even the dictionary definition. You know, talks about to prevail on someone to do something, 
Well, to prevail is, you know, you gain ascendancy through strength, which to me is, is by definition, sort of coercive. Uh, and I think that this is what sellers that don't understand the nature of influence sort of default to this pushy persuasion. Um, and it's interesting, have you read Jonah Berger's book called The Catalyst? I have not. Yeah, yeah I think you'd enjoy it. And so he's a professor at Wharton. He was on my program last year, and we talked about this. And you know, he describes in the book research that shows that basically there's this universal resistance to being pushed or being persuaded. He calls it persuasion reactance. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea, he says, is that when people get pushed, they push back. Um, but everybody has this sort of, he called it, anti-persuasion radar <laughs> that goes off that, that when they sense someone's trying to persuade them. And I guess I don't – to me, that's like sets up persuasion as being very different than, than influence. But anyway, just interesting. Your yeah, take on that. No, that, that, I mean, first of all, that's a, that's another book to read, um, and definitely yeah, want to yeah, give I think that you'd a enjoy go. It. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think you know we see influence as so uh, you know the the key phrase I think that uh, we saw in a lot of definitions was like having the the capacity to affect so yes, decisions, character, whatever, and then persuade as as causing something you know almost causing an effect, and and so I think. One of the when we sort of bridge the two for us, it was in either case you're almost like compelling it, and so um, I think I also think persuasion. And it's one of the things that uh, a friend and I really, when we were figuring out uh, what we were going to call the book, I mm-hmm. asked a friend of mine uh, who's an econ- a PhD economist. I, I wanted his take, and he's just very thoughtful about this. And I said, you know, what do you think? And so we were working through a lot of the definitions and I, I, I feel like persuasion also has even the word used. So coercion and a, a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for, and, you know, and that, that was a big part of just really thinking through whether that was the right word or not. But, you know, if I had to say, if you persuade someone in short, you know, the, the word I would use is you're, you're convincing someone. And I think convincing to some extent feels like they do have a say it's, it's so versus you are, you know, coercing, uh, feels less like they have a say. And so one of the things that you said, you know, no one likes to be influenced or persuaded, kind of that feel. And that's a big, that's a big piece of like the, well, actually not influenced, persuaded, I think. Persuaded, yeah. Was, is that what you said? Exactly. Yes. You, have, you said one of the two. And for sale, I think it's the same with selling, right? We, if you feel like you're being sold to, that never feels good. It, you almost like, because you want to feel in control where the seller is a, is an asset, is a resource, rather than necessarily taking you down a path and you're just sort of following. I feel like there's some sense of that. We, we laugh like in a retail store. So right. one of our facilitators tells a story that you come into a retail store and you want to, I mean, the reason you went in in the first place is to buy something. And so you're looking for a pair of pants or sure, whatever it is. But you think of our natural instinct, like, may I help you? No, I'm just looking. Right. That's the natural instinct when, in fact, you are in that retail store because you do want to buy something. Yeah, otherwise and you buy it online. Exactly. You think of that logic. It's like, so wait, you've come in. It's like, no, if I told you what I was looking for, then you'd help me find it. And if you help me find it, then I'd get in and out and be able to achieve my objective faster. But no, I'd rather sort of protect myself and say I'm just looking. It is an interesting, you know, that's a human instinct. And so. Yeah, that is. Well, that's, I think, what Berger is writing about is that, you know, this is this universal reactance or resistance to, to being persuaded. Yeah, I mean, my, my issue and the reason I, I've written about in my book is because I think in the hands of the way most sellers are trained is is they think this is their job to go out and and convince someone to buy their product versus, hey, I'm trying to help them achieve a certain outcome. 
that's not necessarily defined at the beginning, right? In the hands, persuasion of the hand most sellers is, well, there's a predefined outcome here, which is you're going to buy my product, yeah. as opposed to, yeah, I know you've got choices to make about understanding what your product is and the choices and alternatives you have for, for solving this problem. And I see my job as influencing the choices and trade-offs you make, which result in you making a decision ultimately to, to purchase our product. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. I think this is this dichotomy of the mindsets that really exist in the minds of, of most sellers and exist in the foremost sales training that's out there. This is, you know, if you ask sellers what their job is, well, my job is to, my job is to go persuade somebody to buy my product. And it's like, well, no, that's not your job. You know, to me, that's not your job. I, to, I me, think... to me, your job as a seller is to listen, to understand what's the most important thing to the buyer and then help them get that. That's your job. I think that goes back to something you said earlier around the B2C kind of um, mentality moving its way to B2B. And mm-hmm. I think the folks that do, you know, the one version of what you just said, I think over time will just not perform as well because you don't even, like, I don't even need to get that information from Andy. I can just get it from the website. And so you, you're you yeah. not going to be able to persuade me to buy whatever it is of your product or services because I've already educated myself enough before I even talk to you. And so I do think there's going to be, you know, just a, a weeding out of that mentality to some extent. I mean, you know, it'll take time. But, and and I think then you get into the more thoughtful sales, which is really about thought leadership and being a resource. Because the reality is, if you're going to be in the game long enough, you understand that the biggest, you know, there there are, I mean, we, we know some really successful salespeople we've trained or worked with or partnered with mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. they have said, you know what, Andy, I think in this situation, I'm really not the best fit for you. And right. if you think of the way you can get the most credibility with someone, there's, I can't think of a better way to authentically yep. generally say, look, in this situation, this is not a right fit. I actually recommend you do A, B, and C that's, you know, with a different group. I mean, that person, if that works out, and especially if you've made the right recommendation, I mean, there's just no better way to build credibility. And we've actually done that a few times before, and it's unbelievable. We actually continue to get referrals from a bunch of those clients mm-hmm. that become clients later. We actually get referrals from a couple of people who we've actually never worked with. Right. But we've made recommendations outside of it that have worked well. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a funny thing to think that someone's actually acted as a referral, as a recommendation, excuse me, even, and been a referral when they actually haven't bought our service technically. Well, yeah. But I mean, the thing is, what you became a source of influence to them because you you built this level of trust through your transparency, mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, transparency is, as you know, is very critical for for building trust. Um, but it's again back to sort of this persuasion ethic that exists. You know, I like to call uh, you know persuasion sort of a, a hammer in the hands of most most sellers. Is yeah, that's sort of the opposite approach, right? Is yeah. and that's yeah, it's very effective. I mean, this is unfortunately we sort of go through this, this cycle like every month. Um, <laughs> and sellers is you know they'll may start the conversation with the buyers. Hey, I'm here to help, but then they get to the end of the month and the last two days of the month, and suddenly the discounts start coming in, and I'm not really here to help. I'm here to get an order. The um, it, it I feel like I see it more and more and more, but. There's a lot, especially when you get sales training. So I feel like right after sales training, this is at its peak, if you were to sort of chart it, that uh, there's this tendency to sell through the sales process. Like, okay, you know, first I vetted Andy and now I'm going to do the next step in the process and just not enough kind of uh, awareness around the buying process. To some extent, the sales process is, is really meaningless, right? I mean, the sales process is to guide you and give you tools and skills, but really 
it's the buying process you should be selling to, right? It's it's where is Andy now, and you know <laughs> yeah. what does he need, and you know, and it's just interesting that. Um, we certainly chart that right after. Okay, so I was supposed to. Now the next step is negotiating. Well, it's not like uh, you know you don't do this, 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 and this, and this. And I've heard actually on this show many times before. You talk about sort of the the good and the bad of sales automation. Well, I mean, sales automation has a lot of good, but yep. uh, that personal relationship piece of it, where you adjust your solution, you do a deep discovery, all these factors, you can't automate that. And so that's but that's what's left. That's the piece that then becomes the most valuable in the sales sort of process. Yeah. Well, and also I think absolutely, absolutely. I mean, a lot of great perspective on there. And I, and I would add to that is, is something going back to what you talked about when people going into the retail stores is that I believe that when buyers talk to you and are open up to talk to you, it's it's because they need to, not because they want to. And and if your perspective is, oh, they talk to me, so let me like persuade them to buy my product. It's like, no, 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 no. They've they, They've already looked at your website, right? You know, that's that's been persuaded enough. They've got deeper questions, deeper concerns, deeper things they need to understand that they don't currently understand. And when we have this to the point you talked about, so the seller gets turned loose, and they're following this you know linear stage based process that's been unchanged virtually for a hundred plus years. Um, instead of selling, as you said, to the buyer's journey, and this 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 I just still drives me nuts. It's like why is there two processes? Or why are there two processes? There should be just one process. It's a buy-sell process. And if you're a seller and you're trying to, your manager's trying to say, well, where does the buyer stand? They always define it by your sales process versus where the buyer is in their process. Which And the empathy piece, I think, is what lacks. So, I mean, we write that in the yeah. book and we it could not be more important. And, and I would definitely... You know, I, I put empathy as one of the most important skills. As as time goes on, it continues to become more and more important in mm-hmm. you know in management positions and sales positions and all of these. And I think that's a perfect other example, right? So, if we're selling to the sales process, we're thinking about us. If we're selling, if we are working with the buyer to work through the buying process, it that's a completely different perspective. And yeah. so then it's nothing to do. Like the fact that your month's end is really meaning that means nothing to the buyer. And so the concept that that would change the way you behave, you know, if you think about it in that perspective, is crazy, right? Like you're selling to the buyer, so I don't care that Andy's got, you know, to make, close a couple of deals before the end of October or the end of the year, or the end of the quarter. And so, yeah, I think empathy for us is something that really has over time become so much more important, um, and is is a critical skill for any business developer for sure. Yeah, well, to, to be other centric, absolutely, and I. I yeah, I, I see this, and I said, sort of just drives me nuts. And write about this in my my new book is is okay. Well, I mean, Gartner did a great job. 2018, 2019 came out with their buyer enablement study. They've got this famous diagram charts out based on their research with you know thousands of enterprises what the buyer journey looks like. And it's it's not this linear process. It's it's the, they call it the spaghetti diagram because it's you know hugely complex flowchart that starts and stops and starts over again and so on. And I haven't met a single sales leader that has modified their selling process in reaction to that chart. And, and I think probably, you know, it's uh, it might, it fear is probably, you know, we're all so comfortable with what we do. And I think I hear this analogy all the time. So we work in sports sometimes. 
and so a bunch of our clients are GMs and, and that sort of thing. And so you mm-hmm. hear that just like a, you know, the head, an NFL coach, for example, you know, if you do what's always been done and it doesn't work is one thing, but if you do something new and it doesn't work, you're going to get fired. And I think sales yeah. leaders, that's, you know, it's like, which is, which no, is a right. comical thing because really, it, I mean, you, it's, that should have no bearing, but the risk factor goes up so much because it's just harder to explain where, Hey, look, the reality is I'm, we're not going to implement a sales process. We're actually going to move to a buying process and it's complex. And so it's going to take time to implement. Well, you know, how many people, you know, how many presidents that are overlooking or tra- directors of training, you know, that's not the, it's, it's difficult to even absorb and act on. And it's a scary thing to go through. And so I think that's probably one of the reasons it's not, you know, it's almost not worth it, if you will. No, no, I think you nailed it. Right. I mean, I think that, you know, the tech industry today, the SaaS business is wedded to a, a sales process that is useful for companies who are rapidly scaling, but is built on the back of ultimately poor sales performance. You're just doing a lot of it. And, and it, uh, yeah, they can't break the habit because, yeah, I can't, can't fix the wings while the airplane's in flight. Well, I think over time, you know, eventually it feels like everything else, it will change. I don't know what the cause will be. You know, it's it's uh, one very successful company that starts to do it, you know, could do it. Right or, or whatever. Yeah. Exactly, you know, and so eventually it'll happen, but it is, it's hard to change that momentum. And, you know, it's a big part of it. And the other thing is, you know, there are some companies I think we've seen that are doing it to some extent, and no surprise, they tend to be smaller, right? So under yeah. the radar, more nimble. And so I think... You know, there it is because their their thinking is: look, if this doesn't work in eighteen months, we can go back. They have a nimbleness to do that, and I think there's you know there's buy-in from the entire executive team and things like that. Versus try moving you know Fortune five thousand sales process or a, changing the way they do that. And not only will leadership, but think about how many salespeople you have to convert. I mean, that's the other thing too. That salespeople, like anyone else, it's, it's certainly not a knock on them. Like all of us. Naturally, we don't like to change. And, you know, it's, it's no surprise. We come in a lot of times and we've got sales. I've been doing this for 25 years. I, you know, if I get one thing out of this training, I feel good about it. And and so I'm thinking, well, like that mentality is a little concerning to come into in the first place, you know, because we've been doing this for 26 years and we're still in business, which means our clients are getting something out of it. And so if right. you've got that mentality coming in, okay, and, and we're not afraid of a challenge, but, you know, it's like, well, Look, if if you don't think anything has changed in in sales in 26 years, yeah, I know, I, right? I'm I'm a little <laughs> concerned. There's, I think this goes beyond the scope of our agreement to work with your organization because a lot has changed. And so, actually, wow. COVID. You know what? I will say, COVID has helped a lot there because there's okay, a willingness. Yeah. People can almost save face with like that kind of person who would say, "Look, I've been doing this for many years, but I would be open to some tips of how I can sell remotely or online." And it's been the best thing that ever happened because even if it's got nothing to do with selling remotely or online, they can feel comfortable under their own skin, in their own skin, sort of with like, and it has actually, honestly, we've had more impact probably in the last two years than ever because that, that, you know, you always had that percentage that really wanted it, that percentage that were like medium, and then that percentage that was naysayers. And those naysayers are much more willing and open now just because, you know, they can sort of excuse it easier for themselves too. And again, it's not yeah. a knock on sales develop, you know, it's not on sales and business developers. It's every, you know, it's just natural. No, but you're right. It gives them a context to make the excuse to change. Absolutely. That gives yeah. them self emotional cover, psychological cover. It's a great point. I hadn't really thought about that because I I was just laughing what you're talking about because 
yeah, I mean, anybody who's done any sort of training or speaking, uh, yeah, we all know, you know, the older guy sitting in the front row with his arms crossed um, <laughs> the whole time <laughs> and thinking, you can just tell them the expression on their faces. Yeah, yeah, they're just saying, I've, yeah, I don't need this. I don't need this. I don't need this. And to your point, you know, there's people that refuse to think that the world has changed. Um, and it's changed. I, mean, I, I try to think of the number of, without dating myself unnecessarily, the number of substantial changes in the sales world just in the course of my career. Um, you know, overnight delivery got started the year before I started selling, right? And that was a huge, a huge shift, right? Suddenly we could get documents to customers really quickly across the country. Um, that had a huge impact on the pace of selling. And then, you know, you go to, you know, <laughs> voicemail. People talk about voicemail. Everybody assumes voicemail has been around forever. It hasn't been. Uh, voicemail was transformative. Uh, yeah, I mean, just think of these things that have fundamentally changed uh, the way we sell. Email, internet, you know, on and on and on. I, I think the um, there's a quote that our founder um, used to always say, it's uh, what you learn after you know the uh, know it all that really counts. It's a Harry Truman yep. quote, yep. and uh, you know I love that because I, I think that's um, it, it, like sometimes we we could use that to sort of disarm somebody. And I will say though that there's nothing more satisfying than when you can get that person in the front row. You you sort of you know uh, uh, mentioned that I think many of us can relate to when you convert them. I mean that's it, yep. like even though it should be no more satisfying because every you know you're trying to move the needle for every person in the room. When you've won them over, I feel like that's when it's truly satisfying that either you did it because of the way you did it or because you provided some, you know, some really valuable and impactful piece of advice or whatever it is. Uh, there's just no better feeling. So, Well, but I think you really bring up a, such a great point I hadn't really thought enough about is, is yes, we know everything's changing as a result of, of and has changed as a result of the pandemic. Uh, we know things are be different on the backside of it. It's different already. Yeah, more hybrid work, even that, I'm sure, will continue to evolve, become more uh, established uh, in the workplace. But I hadn't really thought about it. It's like, yeah, this is this this is an event that gives people the the psychological cover to admit that yeah, they could learn something and learn something new and start a new chapter in their own career. And, and I think it it goes hand in hand also with, you know, there's a lot of talk of the great resignation and people oh, yeah. just changing the way they perceive work. And so I think all those are factors that I think like continuous learning, it makes it easier, right? If you're changing jobs and you want to change careers or you're going from an employee to a freelancer, all these things give you additional excuses to sort of like, okay, I want to learn more about this, figure this out, try this. And I think the mentality of that is, is is getting easier to do that now? I would I I don't know that the first people you know the Great Resignation. My guess is based on what I've read, is probably not necessarily a ton of those folks that are more senior because you know the the closer the more you've done something, the less likely you are to sort of just pull the band aid and change. But I think they are certainly being affected and just seeing all this change around them and and so that's it's one again. So now I feel good about this conversation because now there's two things. So. The fact that we were already doing online training for a long time before yeah, COVID, yeah. but now there's two. You know, now it opens people up to try new things and be willing to change the way they do things. So, you know, that's that's now the second perk and benefit of COVID. So, I guess, you know, well, that's, think, that's yeah. No, I agree. I, and the sort I'm <laughs> with my new book, so I'm sort of counting on as well is is you know I th- 
I believe there's a set of sort of stereotypical sales behaviors that are still sort of the dominant behaviors that a majority of sellers use that we know are unproductive, that have no value for the buyer and have no value for the seller, is that perhaps this is you know, a moment in time to say, let's just stop those, right? <laughs> let's just stop. They don't, this is, yeah, they don't help and they're hurting. And yeah, we're doing a little bit of a reset here with in terms of the way we work, uh, the way we interact with our buyers. Let's let's start on a new foot, right? Let's 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 focus on, you know, how we influence choices and trade-offs that people make, and be of help to them to achieve the things that are most important to them, and be you know other-centered as opposed to self-centered. And it feels like, you know, part of the reason people are changing is a lot of times we, you know, just even some studies show. So the churn in sales is, you know, people don't want to work that way anymore. You know, they don't. They want this this uh, internal coherence and consistency is important to them. Is is they don't want to act one way as when they're in sales, and another way when they're a human being. And hopefully, those two will converge. Then you know, I think if, if yeah. acting the way that you're talking about, and that becoming the, the the way you do business, will mean it's more satisfying. And like you said, there it's almost like you don't turn it on and off. You, right. know, you don't turn on your professional sales hat. And then kind of go back home and, you know, take that off. And I think that'll be more satisfying too, because I think you truly believe in what you're selling, that you create genuine relationships and, you know, that, that changes. And I think it's, so it's no surprise. I think that's, it's the chicken or the egg, right? But I think the most mm-hmm. successful salespeople have been doing that. And it's both because they've been doing that, they've been more successful, but also, you know, the, the vice versa too. I think they've also been more satisfied and so want to continue doing it. You know, there's a, there's a, I think there's right. a lot there. Yeah. No, I think there is. I mean, I, I, to your point about, you know, a moment for change, I think sellers are going to embrace this moment. We're seeing some indication of that, you know, still beginning edges of it. But, excuse me, so much of the sales world is based around processes that are, you know, managed by managers, you know, managing for position of fear. And so they, they index down on uh, compliance, to a process instead of letting people develop to become the best version of themselves. And they think they can sort of legislate the humanity out of what is fundamentally a human business. And yeah, I think that's going to come back. I hope so. I, yeah. I think, and I expect it to, it's just a matter of when. Yeah, no, I agree. All right. Well, Andres, so come to the end of our time, but thank you for joining me. Thank you. Uh, I hope you don't regret it. <laughs> no, not, not at all. This is fun. So if people want to learn more about you and your book, uh, how can they do that? So for, for the company, ShapiroNegotiations.com is, uh, is our website. And then the book is called Persuade. And so it's the four-step process to influence uh, people and decisions. And so uh, in either case, but uh, you know, I hope uh, people will reach out if they have any questions and um, I hope that the book will be well received. It's nice now that it's been three months out. We've gotten some some feedback and good. Uh, and so, but yeah, certainly. And it's you know one of the reasons we connected. And I hope this is the first of many conversations, whether or not it's on the air or off air. Yeah, well, I look forward to it for sure. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Andres Lares, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, 
on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.